there were these two brothers, and they were very, very bad. Uh, they were well-known around town for uh, their crooked business dealings and their connections with the underworld, and they were as mean and cold-blooded as you could imagine. And then one day, one of the brothers died, and the surviving brother wanted to give his dead brother a funeral fit for a king. And so he called the funeral home, and he made all of the arrangements, and then he called the town's minister and made him an offer, as they say, that he couldn't refuse. He said to the pastor, I will give you $10,000 to put that new roof on the church if you do my brother's funeral. But the catch is this. You have to call him a saint. When you're speaking about him during the eulogy, you have to call him a saint. And so the minister agreed. I mean, all he had to do was refer to this guy as a saint, and he would get $10,000 so they could fix the church. So the whole town turned out for the funeral, and the minister began his eulogy, the funeral sermon, and he said this, The man you see in the coffin today was a vile and debauched individual. He was a liar and a thief, a deceiver, a manipulator, a reprobate, and a hedonist. He destroyed the fortunes and the careers and the lives of countless people in this city, some of whom are here today. This man did every dirty, rotten thing you can think of. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) That's a canned illustration. I don't use those illustrations, but I heard it this week and I couldn't pass it up. In our passage today, the preacher of Hebrews is actually going to compare some dead people with someone who is very much alive. He's going to compare the dead priest who worked under the old covenant with the resurrected Jesus, who is the mediator and the guarantor of a better uh, covenant. He's going to show us why Jesus is Better And the big takeaway that he wants the Hebrews to know, and he wants us to know, is this. Is that you're on the prayer list of Jesus. Christian, if you are united to Christ by faith, you're trusting in his life, death, and resurrection, then you're on the prayer list of Jesus. And that's why the resurrected Jesus is the mediator and guarantor of a better covenant. As we will see in verse 25, in a moment, and as it was just read, Jesus lives to make intercession for us. Jesus lives to plead for us before our Heavenly Father. His very presence before God the Father is his intercession for us. As the old hymn by John Wesley states, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner Die. In other words, John Wesley is telling you that you're on the prayer list of Jesus. And that ought to be enough truth. 
to get you through what you're going through in your life right now. Look again at the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. We'll start in verse 11 and hear the word of the Lord. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And this really strikes at the heart of what the Hebrews were believing. They were being tempted to return to all the types and the shadows of the Old Covenant that were pointing toward Jesus, the Messiah, and the Redeemer. So the preacher tells them that if perfection could have been attained under the Old Covenant, under the law, if that was true, then there was no need For Jesus to come, if a person could be truly justified under the old covenant, then there's no need for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek. There's no need for Jesus to come. The Levitical priests would have been sufficient, and the Levitical uh, sacrifices would still continue to this day. But since Jesus came, he brings a new law, and the old law is done away with. The old order of things is done away with. Now, let me explain what that means. It isn't that Jesus does away with God's law. In fact, he said in the Gospels, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. When the preacher says that Jesus brings a change in the law, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. Jesus doesn't come to change the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the summary of the moral law of God that is binding on all human beings. So the law of God, when I refer to the law, it's summed up in the Ten Commandments. It's a reflection of God's character, His eternal character. And the law of God, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, is absolutely inflexible. It does not budge. The law says to every single human being, be perfect. So Jesus isn't changing that. God's holy law still remains binding on all human beings of every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. That's why we want the gospel to go there so they can hear the good news that though they have not measured up to the law, There is hope in Jesus. So it's binding on every single human being. And God's law is absolutely inflexible. It's inflexible in its demands. It demands perfection of every single one of us. But the law makes these commands, but what it cannot do is it cannot empower someone to obey it. It can only make demands. That's the role of the law. The law makes demands and commands us to be perfect and it exposes us as sinners because we realize that we can't be perfect and therefore we despair of that truth and then we recognize our need of a Savior. And that's why we preach both law and uh, grace here at Grace. We, we preach the inflexible demands of the law. We tell people, you have to be perfect. And then we preach the words of the gospel. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. 
Those are God's two words, law and gospel. And when the law is preached, we all stand exposed and we should despair of our inability to keep it, our inability to keep it perfectly. And then we hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus paid it all. And that's the order. But when the preacher says here that there is a change in the law, what he means is that a change takes place in that under the old covenant, all of those types and shadows that were pointing to Jesus, they go away now because Jesus is here. And so the administration of the covenant of grace under the old covenant is now obsolete. The tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifice, the feasts, they're all now obsolete because they've been fulfilled in Jesus. And part of that change that comes is that Jesus came from the family line of Judah. And the preacher knows this is going to be one of the comebacks to these Jewish people who've now believed in Jesus. One of their uh, uh, comeback statements is that Jesus is not from the line of Levi. Uh, The old covenant priests had to be from the line of Levi. They would not do well in today's society where people would just rise up and say, my kid wants to be a priest, so you got to make him a priest. You know, we give trophies to everyone even if you lose the game wouldn't work well with the old covenant priesthood. You had to be from the family line of Levi. And so the preacher knows this. This is one of the objections that the Hebrews were hearing from their Jewish friends and family. And so the objection that they were hearing probably went like this. They probably heard things like, Jesus can't be an eternal high priest because he's from the line of Judah and not from the line of Levi. Priests have to come from Levi's family. This is our history. This is in God's law. Jesus is not a part of the correct lineage to be a priest. Therefore, he can't be a priest. And that's the objection that the Jewish people would have made against Jesus. And so the preacher of Hebrews anticipates that argument. And he brings up the fact that Jesus is from the line, the line of Judah. I almost said lion of Judah. He is the lion of Judah from the line of Judah. But he's from the line of Judah. But that's also why the preacher has quoted Psalm 110 so much in his sermon. He's pointing out that David in Psalm 110 said that there must be another priest who comes along after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. In Psalm 110, David is acknowledging the fact that the old covenant priesthood was not sufficient and therefore there was a need for a new eternal priest to come after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus comes, and he changes things up in that he, as our eternal high priest, does away with the types and shadows of the old covenant. He changes things up because he comes from the line of Judah. There's a change of priesthood in Jesus because he serves at the altar in heaven where no Levitical priest has ever served. The old covenant priest only served at a copy of, of the eternal sanctuary in heaven. They only served at the type, at at the copy of the heavenly sanctuary. So yes, it is true that Moses never said anything about the people from the line of Judah serving as priests, but someone else said that, and that someone was God the Father. And he made an oath in Psalm 110 that Jesus would be an eternal priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, beginning of verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The fact that Jesus trumps every other Levitical priest is because he came back from the dead. It's his indestructible life, his resurrection that qualifies him for an eternal priesthood. So Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, meaning he is a priest forever precisely because he came back from the dead, something no other Levitical priest could or ever did Drew. Do Jesus died just like all of the other Levitical priests died, but he was resurrected. The old covenant priests proved their qualifications for priesthood by showing you their family tree. You remember from our series in Ezra and Nehemiah when they came out of exile, if you couldn't prove your family line, then there were priests who couldn't be priests because they couldn't prove it. They lost their paperwork. So they proved it by looking at their family tree, but Jesus proved his qualifications to be a priest by coming back from the dead. The old covenant priests proved their qualifications by their family line, but Jesus proves his by his resurrected life. And the preacher backs this up by quoting David in Psalm 110. Now counting verse 15, this is now the fifth time that the preacher of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, and he'll do it again in verse 21. And he quotes David here to prove to the Hebrews that Jesus' high priestly ministry was announced ahead of time by David in Psalm 110. And so David, who lived under the old covenant, and David who lived under the law, and David who lived under the Levitical priesthood, he announced way ahead of time in Psalm 110 that the old covenant was just temporary and that one day it would be obsolete. And the preacher tells us why. The old covenant had to be put aside and why it is now obsolete. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The old covenant with all of its types and shadows was weak. It was useless, and the reason why is because it could not make sinners perfect. The law could make demands, the law could say to every sinner, be perfect, but it could not empower the sinner to obey. The law exposed sinners, but it could not make them right. The sacrifices of the old covenant were instituted by God in the law, but they didn't make anyone perfect perfect. It didn't give them the righteousness that they needed to actually stand in God's presence. And this makes sense if you stop and think about it. How could an animal dying in my place for my sins really make me right with God? That animal is all moral. That animal, that lamb has not broken any of the Ten Commandments. So really its blood doesn't wash away my sins Really, I'm, I'm the one that should die and pay for my sins. Now, they were, yes, they were forgiven under the old covenant, but the point is they couldn't be made right. They couldn't be perfect. And that's why the law 
could not make anyone perfect. That's why Jesus is better than Moses. Scott Clark, one of my favorite theologians, says that Moses works for Jesus. Moses and the sacrificial system and all the types and the shadows in the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus. They were never the point. Moses works for Jesus, not the other way around. And under Moses, under the law, no one could be made perfect. And that's why a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that better hope is Jesus because he lived a perfect life for us, perfectly obeying the law of God on our behalf. And because he died a perfect death as a human being in our place on the cross. And because of that, we have the righteousness that we need to stand before a holy God. We now have the perfection that we need to be able to come into God's presence. We can actually draw near to God because of Jesus. But if you're like me, my tendency is to run away from God. I understand his holiness and I understand my sinfulness and the two shall never meet in my mind. And so oftentimes I run from God instead of to him. Kelly Capick says, run from him? That is the last thing he desires. Run to him. This is to understand the glory of the gospel. Running to God and feeling the warmth of his fatherly embrace when you feel dirty and have been dirtied by sin. When you're smelly with sin and stinking of sin, running to your father in that moment and feeling his warm, tender embrace, that is the glory of the gospel. Drawing near to God any time is the glory of the gospel. Drawing near to God through your high priest Jesus is the glory of the gospel. And when you do run to him, when you draw near to God, what you will discover is this amazing truth that you're actually on the prayer list of Jesus. Think about that. Jesus is praying for you, Christian We like to ask people, will you pray for me? And they say, yes, we will. And we derive comfort from that. And when someone says, I've been praying for you, we derive comfort from that. And we should. Hey, pray for me. I'm asking you, please pray for me. And tell me you're praying for me, and I will derive comfort from that. But think about this. The eternal Son of God is praying for us. What kind of comfort does that bring? It can bring... Bring it on, life, because Jesus is praying for me. Under the old covenant, you were a priest because of the family line. It, was based, it wasn't based on character. You were born into it. And so there were good priests and there were bad priests. You can read that in the Old Testament. And one of the duties of the priests is that they were supposed to pray for the nation. They were to go into the holy place and light incense and get out the weekly prayer list and pray through it. And the priests even wore these special stones in these pockets on the chest of their uh, garment. And engraved on these, these stones were the, the names of the tw- 12 tribes of Israel. And so the priests were carrying the nation and the 12 tribes of Israel close to their hearts as they prayed for them, as they interceded for the nation. 
And as they drew near to the Lord, they would lift up the nation in prayer and they would pray through the prayer list. But you had no guarantee under the old covenant if the priests really did pray for you. They could have been thinking about football when they should have been praying. They're sinners. They could have been daydreaming on the job when they should have been lifting the nation up in prayer. I mean, imagine that. Imagine, this is a crazy idea. Imagine daydreaming while you pray. Imagine drifting off in your thoughts when you pray or drifting off to sleep when you pray. Imagine uh, thinking about a slice of pepperoni pizza while you pray. Not, not that any of you ever do that, right? You all never think of football or, or you're never praying and you think, oh, I need to mow the lawn today. Or you never think, oh, we're out of butter. I need to remember that. Or you never start craving a slice of pizza or anything like that. You never daydream while you pray, right? Me either. Liars? <laughs> we're all a bunch of liars because we all do that. And the old covenant priests, because they were sinners, I'm sure they did that too. But Jesus never does. Jesus never falls asleep praying for us. Jesus never says, I'll be praying for you. Hey, I'll be praying for you, okay? And then he forgets. We've all done that, right? We tell someone, I'll be praying for you. And then you forget and you see him again. And you're like, ooh, I said to pray for him every day. And it's been two weeks and I haven't prayed once. We all do that. But Jesus never did that, and Jesus never does that. And that's why Jesus is better. He's better than the priestly uh, system under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, the priests were supposed to intercede for the people before God, but you had no guarantee that it was happening. But what happens when you draw near to God now? What do you find? What do you hear You find and you hear Jesus praying for you, pleading for you, interceding for you before God the Father. Andrew Murray says, Without ceasing, there streams forth from him to the Father the prayer of his love for every one and every need of those that belong to him. His very person and presence is that prayer. So closely and inseparably is he identified with those he calls his brethren. That's why Jesus is better. Because there streams forth from him to the Father the prayer of his love for every single one of us and every single one of our needs. All that belong to him who are united to him by faith. That's why Jesus is better. Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Here's why Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, because God the Father took an oath and he said it. The priests under the old covenant were not sworn in, they were born in. They weren't sworn into the priesthood, they were born into it, but God swore an oath that his son Jesus would be an eternal high priest for sinners like us. It was God who said that Jesus would be a priest forever. Again, the preacher quotes Psalm 110 here to prove his point. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant because God the Father told him, you will be a priest forever. 
And so the old covenant priests were born into the priesthood, but then they died. But Jesus is declared a priest forever by God, and then he proved that by coming back from the dead. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath in Psalm 110, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, remember the context. The Hebrews were a predominantly Jewish group of believers, and they were being tempted to return to the law, to all of the types and shadows under the old covenant. So see what the preacher is doing here. He's trying to get them to see how foolish it would be to go back. He just told them, no one can be perfected by the law. He just told them the old covenant has been set aside because it was weak and it was useless for making sinners perfect. And now he tells the Hebrews that it's ridiculous to want to return to the old covenant priests because all of the old covenant priests die. And even if they got a priest, he said, even if you got a high priest that you liked and one that you trusted, they could still die at any moment. And then they would eventually die. And who knows? The priest that you got might be a bad priest. There was no guarantee that they wouldn't have a good priest. They might have got a high priest who gossiped about all your sins to other priests or to other people. There was no guarantee, but what does Jesus do? The preacher says, he intercedes for you. He prays for you. There streams forth from him to the Father the prayer of his love for every one and every need of those that belong to him. He's praying for you individually, Christian, and all of your needs, the things that were on your mind in the middle of the night when you woke up and you were stressed, and now you're wide awake because you're thinking about all the things that are stressing you out, and Jesus is not only praying for you, he's praying for your needs as well. He prays for every one of us, for every one of our needs, and he lives forever. He won't die. He's a good priest that you can trust. He lives to make intercession for you, Christian. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners, meaning he's not like us. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he never sinned. And he's exalted above the heavens, and he lives to make intercession for you. Think about that. Jesus lives to make intercession for you. If you could take, talk to Jesus and say, what are you living for? I mean, I mean, what's your passion? What do you live for, Jesus? He would say, I live to pray for my people, to make intercession before them, before my Father all the time. He has no need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. 
The Levitical priests had to offer sacrifices for their sins, and then they would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But Jesus doesn't have to do this. In fact, he offered himself as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God, for our sins. And his priesthood is backed up by God's promise in Psalm 110. The law, which came before Psalm 110, appointed weak, sinful men to represent other weak, sinful humans before God. But in contrast to that, Jesus is without sin and he serves as an eternal priest forever. As sinners, and we're all sinners here, we need a high priest to represent us before God. We need our guilt removed because we can hear the faint echo of the law saying be perfect and we know we haven't measured up and so we need our guilt removed from us and so Jesus speaks to God the Father on our behalf in our defense on the basis of his life death and resurrection you do realize what Jesus basically says to God the Father don't you he speaks the gospel They talk about the gospel with one another. Jesus' wounds point to the gospel. They rehearse the gospel together. Jesus rehearses the gospel, if you will, with God the Father through his very presence. His very presence at God's right hand is his intercession for those who are in union with him. Why do you think we talk about the gospel here all the time? Because this is the one thing that God the Father and God the Son are always talking about. So why not talk about what they talk about, right? And it's not that God the Father has to be reminded about this. It's that this is what Jesus does as our high priest. His wounds effectually intercede for our sins Day and night, every day of the year, without end, forever. The high priest would only go in one day a year into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the nation. But Jesus is there 24-7, interceding and pleading on our behalf. Look again at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, Christian, you're on the prayer list of Jesus. In other words, you're saved by the prayers of Jesus. Think about that. You're saved by the prayers of Jesus which is the gospel, his life, death, and resurrection. He is able to save to the uttermost, to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save completely because he lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save because he prays for them, because he intercedes for them, and because he is our forerunner, who has gone before us, as we saw at the end of Hebrews chapter 6, because he is the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, then we can draw near to God now with confidence, and we can actually approach the throne of grace. They would only do it once a year in the Old Testament. And even then they wondered, am I going to make it out alive? And we, sinners just like them, can barge right into God's presence. 
John Calvin said this in his commentary on Hebrews. For though the high priest carried the names of the twelve tribes on his shoulders and symbols on his breast, yet he alone entered the sanctuary while the people stood in the court. But now, by relying on Christ the mediator, we enter by faith into heaven, for there is no longer any veil intervening. But God appears to us openly and lovingly invites us to a familiar access. Under the old covenant, only the high priest would enter into God's presence. You wouldn't dare barge into God's presence. You'd be struck dead. But now, because Jesus came, we can barge right in. All who are in union with Christ may enter his presence at any time. We don't have to wait outside in the courtyard like they did under the old covenant. And that's why Jesus is better. We can just run right to him. And that's why Jesus is better. It's why the old covenant is obsolete. And to return to the old covenant at any time, at any point in history, to return to the old covenant is to walk away from Jesus. Jesus is better because he's, as John says in 1 John 2, he is our advocate before God the Father. As our advocate, he lives to make intercession for us. What sort of pledge and how great is his love toward us? He lives for us, not for himself. He lives for us, not for himself. He lives to make intercession for us. This is what Jesus is ever doing This was his purpose in coming back from the dead. Christian, please understand, Jesus is not your judge anymore. He's your defense lawyer now. Jesus is not the judge that you appear before anymore. Now he is your defense lawyer. And your defense lawyer is ever pleading for you before God the Father. Your defense lawyer is ever pleading and speaking of your innocence before God the Father. And that means then that when your inner lawyer rises up to condemn you, you have to remember that you have a defense lawyer and his name is Jesus and he lives to make intercession for you. When your inner lawyer, guilt and shame, rise up within you. You have to remind yourself you have a defense lawyer. Your inner lawyer, they work at the law offices of guilt and shame. When they rise up within your heart, you have to say, no, 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 I have a defense lawyer. His name is Jesus, and he is pleading and declaring my innocence before God the Father right now. Romans 8.34, Paul says, then who is to condemn? Who can condemn us if Jesus is our defense lawyer? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here's what John Calvin says in his commentary on Romans 8.34. He says, who intercedes? He says it was necessary, necessary expressly to add this, to add the words, who intercedes? Lest the divine majesty of Christ should terrify us. In other words, he's saying, the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write these words, who intercedes for us, otherwise the divine majesty of Christ would terrify us. Though then, from his elevated throne, he holds all things in subjection under his feet, 
Yet Paul represents him as a mediator whose presence it would be strange for us to dread since he not only kindly invites us to himself but also appears an intercessor for us before the Father. But we must not measure this intercession by our carnal judgment for we must not suppose that he humbly supplicates the Father with bended knees and expanded hands. But as he appears continually, as the one who died and rose again, and as his death and resurrection stand in the place of eternal intercession and have the efficacy of a powerful prayer for reconciling and rendering the Father propitious to us, he is justly said to intercede for us. He welcomes you, Christian. He welcomes you. As we close, let's think about this. Where do you need Jesus, your high priest, in your life? Maybe you've been chasing after other things and trying to find satisfaction in them. For the Hebrews, it was returning to the old covenant, for returning to the law. What are you trying to go back to in your life to find satisfaction, to find worth, to find justification? I was reading in Isaiah this last week, and in Isaiah 28, um, Israel and Judah want to lean, lean on Egypt to protect them from the Assyrians who are coming. And the Assyrians were a wicked, awful people. And the Assyrians are coming. They're about to wipe us out. And the king of Egypt says, hey, I'll protect you. Let's make a deal. I don't like those guys. I don't like the Assyrians. I'll protect you. And, and Isaiah comes to them. And the Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, if you go lean on Egypt for help, let me tell you what it will be like. You'll be miserable. Isaiah says, God says to his people through Isaiah, says, it will be like sleeping on a short bed that you can't stretch your legs out on and trying to cover up with a tiny blanket. That would be a miserable way to sleep at night, wouldn't it? On a short bed, you can't stretch your legs out, you got a tiny little blanket you can't cover up. And Isaiah says, that's what it's going to be like if you go to Egypt for rescue, for salvation, for help. Let me ask you this morning, where are you going for rescue, for help, for salvation, for satisfaction? It will end in misery. It always does. Jesus is better. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Or maybe for you, it's just the shame and guilt. That's where you need Jesus, your high priest, this morning. Because of the shame and the guilt that is weighing you down. I would say to you today, as John Wesley says in his hymn, Arise, O My Soul. He says, shake off your guilty fears, Christian. And run to him. He welcomes you. He's not your judge anymore, Christian. He's your defense lawyer. And when God the Father looks at his son Jesus, he sees the one who was sent out of the Father's love for his elect people. He sees Jesus, the one who has secured all of our blessings. And when God the Father looks at his son, he sees us because we are in union with him. And when we look at the elements of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of his love. The table spread before us today is the proof of God's love for us. And to help prepare our hearts, hear the words from John Wesley's hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. He says, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. 
his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. This is your high priest, Christian. Run to him today. Don't run from him. Run to him. Shake off your guilty fears and run to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your oath, your promise in Psalm 110 that your son Jesus would be our eternal priest forever. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he represents us before you. He ever pleads, ever intercedes for us. What great love that you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for sinners like us. We confess our sin. We confess that we're sinners. We repent. We say, God, forgive us for chasing after 10,000 other lovers and trying to find satisfaction, for trusting in our idols who only bring misery in the end. Help us to shake off our guilty fears and to run to you, not from you this morning. And empower us by your grace as we eat a covenant meal with you to celebrate the peace that we have because of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.